Hello and welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is a replay of episode 135. In this episode, you'll be listening in on the conversation between Dr. Ved Nanda, Dilpreet Jammu, and Reverend Diana Thompson. Enjoy. So Janelle's going to collect some questions right now, and then we're going to have the panel. Three questions will probably last 45 minutes. <laughs> All right, so come on back up, Diana, and Ved, and Dilpreet, and you are going to have a good time here. So, All right, well, I think I'm going to actually start with the question we started with last time, because I think it was a great one. Um, what breaks your heart the most within your religion or and or the perception of your religion? There's an answer right here. I, I have answered it. You really don't want to go first, do you? <laughs> this seems to be a theme here. We need to talk about it. I don't care where you sit. You have to go first. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll take it. I think um, we are probably the youngest uh, fifth largest religion in the world, and yet the vast majority of Americans know nothing about our faith, about our philosophy, or any of that. So I, I, I think the, the, the way I'd like to put it is, um, we as a community have not done enough to explain who and what we are. So there's all sorts of misconceptions, and our kids get bullied because of it, and so on. So I, I think that would be my answer in a nutshell. In Hinduism, because of 10,000 years, and there have been times when uh, re- reform needed to be done. Some ills had come in because uh, over a period of time, those things can happen. And at the present time, the remnants of all that, you can see still in the caste system, Still, you can see that there are some people, because of the baggage of history, because in India for ten, you know, for eight thousand years of kind of Muslim rule, seven, eight thousand, two thousand years of um, um, British rule. So in those ten thousand years, um, the self-esteem was gone. In those ten thousand years, this was a year of kind of years of darkness in the sense that uh, there was simply survival instinct and uh, all was looked around as under siege. And that is the setting where doors are closed, windows are hunkered down, and uh, the um, country and Hinduism went through a pretty, pretty dark period. So I think still those remnants are here. And I think uh, there are plenty of reformers, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, others have done. And I think it will probably take another 50 to 100 years for Hinduism to come back to its own shape that it once was and that it will be in the days to come. See, I guess in terms of heartbreaking, it always, when I look at places like uh, Burma or Sri Lanka, where they are using the Buddhist tradition, um, twisting it to just be nationalism, basically, saying that these are Buddhist countries, and then turning around and 
yeah, in Sri Lanka, it was the Tamil Hindus, and now in Burma, it is the Rohingya Muslim population, and they are, like, it's a... Yeah, it's actually a crisis. It's gotten so bad over there. So that that is heartbreaking. Um, and I don't know, I would say that going along with what uh, Dilpreet said too, I think we as Buddhists have also not done a whole lot to educate people about our traditions, um, even just small things like the fact that we have different sects within Buddhism. A lot of people don't know. And... Um, I don't know, breaks my heart, but super bums me out that um, the face of Buddhism, the more popular kinds of things, um, it kind of draws on and plays upon that whole Orientalist mentality that all Buddhists are Buddhists in the same way that all Asians are Asians. And so I think like, yeah, we... We are responsible. That's why I accept these speaking engagements all the time because I feel that, yeah, we need to be doing more too to kind of educate people on our tradition as well. So, Cool. Well, one of the questions um, is, is there anything in your tradition like evangelism? So evangelism being the idea that we, we go out and share our truth in a way to try to win people to come to our point of view. And if, if, if there is, what is that like? If not, why do you think that hasn't developed in your tradition? In Hinduism, um, there is no conversion. And uh, because initially it was simply said that this is one where sages and seers, after years of reflection, have given some ultimate or real truths and they are for all people from all over the world. And so, because of these other religions, and um, they are seen as the same in the sense that all these paths, Hinduism feels there are all these different paths, and just like all these rivers go down to the ocean, similarly, all these paths are going to lead ultimately to that salvation. And so, there is no... There are different paths, there are different ways of doing things, and all of them have equal respect for us, and they are all equally genuine to us, so, that, so long as human beings act in a fashion that uh, those qualities of compassion and those qualities of harmoniously living um, become a part of life. Okay. All right. I'll go next. <laughs> <laughs> the pressure. <is> <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, we do have a tradition. Uh, even from the moment that the Buddha got enlightened, he got up and wanted to go tell everybody about it. So uh, it may not be quite in the same way, but there is a reason that Buddhism spread throughout Asia. The monks went on trade routes to go share the teachings with others. Um, some traditions are more, um, sorry for lack of a better word, aggressive. I'm not meaning this yeah. in any kind of uh, mean way, but uh, definitely, yeah, the uh, Soka Gakkai International, so the Buddhist center that's down on Spear and Colfax, they're Nichiren Buddhist of the Soka Gakkai denomination, and they actively 
go out. Um, I know back when uh, Stapleton was an airport here, they used to go to the airports and hand out literature and things like that. So we definitely have, yeah, Buddhist okay. evangelists, I guess. Yeah. Um, you're not going to find Sikhs knocking on the door with literature. <laughs> and the, the reason for that is that we believe that all the faith traditions have been given the truth or have been shared a part of the truth. We believe that we do not have the ultimate truth. And let, let me put it in perspective for you. If God is truly present everywhere, uh, you've got uh, 94 billion light years worth of universe. That's the observable universe that goes in all directions. To state that you have the truth and the ultimate truth and st means that you have to be able to describe the source, the creator, the will, all those things. And that is just not possible as a, as a single human being or as a part of any given faith. So from our point of view, all traditions have been exposed to or are aware of the truth, whatever that truth is. It is the source, the creator, who helps define your relationship with the source and the creator. And ultimately, uh, that's where I will leave it. Because anything beyond that is trying to either divine the will, explain the will, or explaining creation. And that, from a human being point of view, is just not possible. Actually, out of uh, India, all these uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, all these Indic traditions, um, as uh, Diana rightly said, that in Buddhism there are those who would like to at least show what they have and have others look into it, but they do not convert. And it's not a conversion tradition. And that's where at times in India uh, there is at present a difficulty because when these... Um, um, missionaries go and convert people and at times you know they do wonderful work but at least the perception in some time is that they take care of the poor and take care of the sick and at times it is that if you want help you have to be converted and that causes a little bit of trouble in India yeah and, you know, I, I was going to say, it's, uh, you'll see hear many commonalities because we are all part of the dharmic traditions. Uh, one I'd just love to share, uh, within the Sikh tradition, uh, we believe that this is not the first universe. There have been countless universes before this. Because if you think about it, and you've got an infinite source or an infinite creation, then why would there only be one universe? And that comes out of Hindu philosophy, that comes out of... So in, in our faith tradition, there's countless universes. There have been countless before. And if that annoys you, the best way to look at it is nobody consulted you on this one. <laughs> <laughs> so what makes you think that there weren't others before and that there won't be others after? And that's a very humbling way to look at the world because you're seeing it now as... And it, this is explained in our tradition as well. And within the Hindu tradition, there's countless beings on countless worlds over countless 
ages and countless eons, all of them are praising the source and the creation. So to go around and to knock on someone and say, you need to convert over to this one, I don't think that really fits with any of our faith traditions. Okay. Um, along those lines, uh, someone asked about, uh, with a belief of reincarnation, where or how does the soul exist? You want me to take this one for... <laughs> I thought by being on this side, it would all flow from there. It doesn't work that way. So I'm going to mess with you a little bit because I didn't have time to cover this. Within Sikhism, you don't have a soul per se. I want you to think that one through. Because I want you to think back to the fact that you've got a name and you love hearing your name, because I do. I'll sit all day saying Dilpreet, 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 drives people crazy. And it's all about me. But the fact is, if you look at it, your name has been given to you by somebody else. And in fact, when you look at everything that you have got, and I've had self-made people argue with me on this one, if you look at everything that you have got, it's a part of your identity. And it is all temporary. So, at one time you were a student, so you're walking around real happy. I got a daughter now who's all happy about being a CU Boulder student. At one time I was all happy about being a student as well. But my point is that every identity that you have got is coming from outside and from elsewhere. It's an external thing, including the whole notion of nations. That is also an external construct. Everything that you touch is an external construct. Within Sikhism, you do not have a soul that you own, per se, because you sure as heck didn't make the body that you are inhabiting right now. You can't say I'm self-made because you did not construct that. The same is true in terms of, and we use the word, the light within. That light within is a part of the source and a part of that creation, and there is trans transformation and transformation uh, uh, um, and migration that does, thank you that does occur as a part of that tradition and we believe that beyond that everything is like the universe you aren't there at the start of it you're not going to be there at the end of it so the job is really to live this life to its fullest to be able to become one with that source so that you can escape the cycle of birth and death that's it that's the simplest way but the soul and, and I've had this discussion with people who believe that they have a soul and that they own it, and I'm like, okay, that sounds great. <laughs> when did you make it? You don't make your own soul. If there is a soul, that's why the concept of the light of God is the one that we use, because once you start saying, my soul, my, 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 it goes back into that entire identity cycle that you capture for yourself, and then you start forgetting that Vade and Diane also have the light and the source within them as well. And a good life. <laughs> He's got a great life. I, I want his, actually. <laughs> In Hinduism... Reincarnation goes back to the idea that um, we are part of that creation, part of that divinity. We've got to go back and uh, be part of it again. And over a period of time, period of lives, because of this cause and effect, that gradually you're moving toward that enlightenment. 
and that enlightenment as it comes, then you are again merged with that entity and that source. Yeah, the concept of soul in Buddhism, same kind of thing. Um, and it depends on the type of Buddhist tradition. So there are long-standing under, like, long-standing understandings, I guess we'll just go with that, um, of the idea of an essential something transmigrating through lifetimes. And all of that, for the most part, is drawn out of certain Hindu concepts of cosmology and different realms of existence and things like that. Um, so there are traditions that definitely have a solid concept of there is an essential something that's moving through lifetimes that will come back. Um, the... Uh, I can never remember, but the Dalai Lama's specific Tibetan tradition, obviously they have a solid concept of that because that's how they find the Dalai Lamas. Um, for my tradition uh, specifically, and for a few other Buddhist traditions, the idea of uh, reincarnation is not that you come back as something because, yeah, the idea of having an essential anything is kind of bananas to most Buddhists um, because, yeah, we are changing all the time and there is no real essential anything to us. So it wouldn't be reincarnation per se, but just whatever you have left after you die. So even at your funeral, everybody has very specific memories, and that's what's going to continue to live on. So that's how a lot of Buddhists see the reincarnation, too. Okay. What can the other religions learn from your tradition that would approve upon the positive values they already possess? I think in Hinduism... The feeling is that we learn from each other. And um, that, uh, as I mentioned, all these faiths and all these traditions have truth. All these traditions are trying to have our own existence here in a way that is, there is nobility and there is compassion and there are all those good qualities that human beings have. And therefore, the point simply is that it's not that Hinduism can teach others, but that we, in our interaction with each faith, learn from each other. I would agree with that, too. I think uh, both Dilpri and Ved have mentioned the idea of, like, the thousands of teachings, and Buddhism specifically, we, I don't know where we got the number, but it says the 84,000 paths to enlightenment. And so, um, again, not that we could necessarily... I don't know, presume to teach other religions things, but yeah, just the idea for ourselves that there is some sort of enlightenment or higher state of being and everybody's got to get there differently. So to build more tolerance through that kind of thing. Um, the word sick uh, actually means student. So from my point of view, it's not so much as to what to teach what we could teach others, I think it's what could we learn as a shared experience from other faiths and traditions. And that's part of the reason I, I joined the Interfaith Alliance. It's an opportunity to understand other traditions and to learn uh, because there is a, 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 there is a beauty in all the faith traditions that exist out there. So I don't think there's so much to teach as there is to learn and to see what is common. Because when you actually look at you, you look at the um, 
the faith traditions, uh, we all have things like compassion built in. Okay, and the way I like to say it is, I I, I hate loving my neighbor, but I can feel compassion for somebody, and and that is something that's built in, in every one of our faith traditions. So it, it's fascinating what we can learn from each other as opposed to share and teach. Thank you. Um, so someone asked the question, where is the Native American point of view? And um, from the Brew Theology perspective, we've really only had one contact into that community. And so I'd like to take that question, if I can, and ask you, do you have a relationship with indigenous peoples or indigenous traditions um, that, that comes through in what you believe today? And in saying that also, that um, we need to honor the lands that we are on today of the Ute and the Arapaho, um, that we are here and that they have shared their lands with us. Um, so, There is, uh, among Hindus, a group of people who are international cultural um, traditions. And what they have done is that in Europe, all these uh, Roma and other ancient traditions similarly in Latin America and here Native Americans, that they have brought them together. And I have uh, gone to a couple of those international conferences in India and uh, one in Europe where um, they have gotten together and find a whole lot of uh, values and principles that are common in these ancient traditions. So there is at the present time an effort to bring all those ancient traditions and their elders together and uh, to at least uh, look at some perspectives, modern and ancient, from their own viewpoint. From an interfaith point of view, we do have uh, probably names if you are trying to establish that. From a faith perspective, what I've always found fascinating is how much of the, the Native American, the indigenous traditions are all aligned. When you actually get to the essence of it, it's all around nature and respecting nature and learning to live with nature as opposed to bulldozing it and put up a parking lot. And so those are the types of things that, that resonate with, with our, our culture and, and with our traditions as well. And I think with many other faith traditions, it is, you know, you, you, we, we have hit a point as a society now, I think we've eaten pretty much everything we can eat. And now what does one do with that wealth, with that knowledge, and how does one now start to live in harmony as opposed to trying to live in conquer mode? And, and that is something that I think we can learn just in terms of uh, being with our fellow indigenous folks. See, I mentioned on the sheet that you guys have that uh, Buddhism is going to look different wherever it is because it kind of, like a religious tofu, it just jumped into place and absorbed all the local flavors. So um, we have a long-standing tradition of just kind of, yeah, folding a lot of the native traditions in to uh, whatever the particular Buddhism got brought over. For, 
I don't know, Europe and North America. I'm not, I haven't seen it so much, so I don't think we've done that um, in this new phase, but Buddhism has only been in Europe and North America for maybe 130 years at the most, and that's that's like drop in the bucket in terms of time. So. Yeah, this is my question. So, <laughs> um, in, in talking about Native peoples and, and indigenous uh, religion, we just had a great conversation you'll get to listen in on with Rabbi Stephen Boothnadov, who you all know, and talked about deep ecumenism, and one of the things that came up there was the indigenous um, discussions around water and the role of water in their traditions and the way that they interact with it. In my tradition, I, I come from a Christian background, we have baptism, which is a significant um, interaction with water, and we also do some healing and anointing with water. What does water represent or do in your tradition? In the Hindu tradition, water and fire, these two are the main elements that go in almost every ritual. And uh, those rituals, based upon water, and based upon fire are the ones that at the present time in all native traditions in Europe, in Latin America, Native Americans here, they are also present in that. And as I talked about the this Hindu group that has been meeting with all these native traditions, I think the common element in all that has been one, nature and uh, ecology and earth and how close relationship between earth and human beings. And as Dilpreet Rai properly said, that not to conquer nature, that we are not there to exploit it, but to work with it. In harmony with the nature, we need to live. And that is what all these ancient traditions, and I think the dharmic traditions in India have in common. So one of our closing prayers during our service is Bhavan Guru Pani Pita Mata Dharth Mahat. The, um, the, the water is the guru of life. The uh, earth is the mother and the father. So we have uh, rituals around bathing the Buddha, which involve us obviously pouring water over uh, statues of the Buddha and the idea behind that being sort of as... You are washing the Buddha, you are also looking at the Buddha or the truth, and the truth is also seeing you. So it's a way to kind of interact with that truth in a more personal way. And it does come out of the, the Hindu idea of the, the darshan, the I see the deity and the deity is looking at me too, kind of a thing. So, But it's for us, it's I see the truth and the truth also sees me. All right, uh, Dilpreet, you're up. Um, the question is, why the turban, and what about women? <laughs> um, the turban makes me hot. I've had lots of dates because of it. <laughs> In my younger days, right now, don't tell my wife I said that. I'll take that back. <laughs> Okay, I, okay. Probably what, what does the turban <laughs> yes, represent? I, was, I got that, order? but the way yeah. I, you linked it, I was like, hey, I, I got the mic, it. I'll take it the way I want to take it. <laughs> All right. Uh, so the turban is uh, a symbol of our faith. Uh, it was put in place by the 10th guru, 
about 200 years after our faith was formed, and it is to be able to identify a member of the Sikh faith. Because if you truly believe in something, you need to be able to stand up and stand out for that. You need to be willing to fight for your faith, and you need to be willing to die for it. And the best way to put it is it's a form of identity that was done to separate us from uh, the other faiths. And, and that's how I will give you the simplest answer. Women within the Sikh tradition were given equality and it was codified within our scriptures from a very early point in time. And there is, uh, uh, there have been women leaders within the Sikh tradition. There were women everywhere in terms of leadership positions. Women are considered equal both spiritually as well as temporarily. So there's no job that a woman cannot do. And the best way to describe it is uh, when my sister was married, uh, we had a member of our friends of our family come in to conduct the service, and she did a great job. So women take leadership roles, are able to pray, are able to do everything that guys are able to do. And I think that was the true question that was being yeah. asked, as opposed to the one I answered. That's a great answer. Uh, so e e equality has been uh, built into the Sikh tradition. All right. Uh, Diana, do you consider the Eightfold Path a guide to action? It depends on where you are in your specific path. So the Eightfold Path for everybody, uh, self-included, who are not um, monks or nuns, it's a set of broad suggestions. So if once in a while you can get around to having right speech or right action, then you're doing okay. Um, for the monastic communities, it's a step-by-step. -step. Like, you have to perfect one before you can move on to the other. And so you start at right speech and end at right meditation, but it's a really long process, and they're the ones that have to work through and perfect all of those. So. Okay. And then uh, I think this was partnered with it. Um, what about meditation and practices to become enlightened? If you want to answer that from a Buddhist perspective, but then also if you guys want to jump in with how meditation and prayer uh, work in your traditions. Well, as I mentioned with the Eightfold Path, so meditation is the very last one. Um, traditionally, meditation was for the sole purpose of attaining enlightenment. It was a religious practice that often wouldn't even be delved into unless you had been at the monastery for a long, long time because it, um, Buddhism is all about a lot of self-investigation. And so by the time you hit that eighth step, your mind was clear enough for you to deal with it because, yeah, as I'm sure we all know, any moments with yourself, you don't know what box of monsters is going to open up up there, and it can be a little frightening. But if you've already done all of these steps ahead of time, then... Yeah, you're mentally prepared for it. Uh, obviously, uh, here more, more recently, so I would say since um, Buddhism started coming into Europe and the United States, the channels that it came through, um, other than the specific groups of immigrants, were through like 
upper middle class Victorian salons. So it was groups of people getting together and reading these texts. Um, there were sort of whatever you would call them, rogue monks and priests who um, would sometimes be invited to lead these groups and ultimately ended up taking like what was an establishment practice and it turned it into um, kind of the meditation that we see today with meditation centers, which are... Um, typically less religious in nature because you're not doing it for the purpose of enlightenment. It's more of a kind of, um, what would it be, like a secular medicine practice, but that has also become very common in a lot of uh, Western Buddhist traditions. So. In Hinduism, there are four paths that are set in order to get to salvation. One is the one that you serve humanity work with each person in order to see that their lives are better. Then I think the other one is gyan, that you study and you do scriptures and all that. The third one is that you do um, worshipping, meditation, but in all these four paths, and I'm not going into all the details, but meditation, yoga, Ayurveda, these are the traditions in India. And uh, sages and seers, when um, Hinduism and values and principles that uh, they are given because there is no founder of it, all those principles were the ones that came out of that meditation and pranayam, the breathing exercises, and all that is the one that brought about all those kind of basic, fundamental truths and principles that Hinduism has. So meditation is very important. Within the Sikh tradition, the entire purpose of this human life is to experience the source, to experience the divine, and to become one with that source or with that one creative power. And people ask me, well, how's that done? And here's what I want everybody to do. Take your right hand. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Put it on the top of your head like this, right there. That, that is how you communicate with the source and with the creator. And so given the fact that you've been given an amazing brain, um, the human birth is considered one of the most rare and exceptional gifts. And so it is through a combination of meditation and prayer that we become and experience the divine. And the prayer aspect of it is individual as well as within the sangat, meaning within the congregation, through singing of hymns, uh, understanding and understanding prayers, and praying together. So there's that entire community aspect, including the langar, which I described earlier. But then there is a major component of it, uh, which is, I love the word, the monsters. You don't know what monsters are, are going to appear. I would say that the worst person you can ever sit with is yourself in a quiet room. Because then you realize what your thoughts are truly like. And it is meditation that allows you to overcome those negative thoughts and that negativity and then begins to connect you within the source, uh, with the source or with the one that is present with you. Yeah. And that is why meditation and prayer are both very important within the Sikh tradition. Um, I want to ask, um, 
What is music? How does music function in your traditions? <laughs> music functions potently. <laughs> and because um, um, all those hymns, you go back to the Vedas and almost all these scriptures, um, they're all musically oriented. Okay. And uh, you sing them. And I think uh, chanting and singing, that is simply part of it. Uh, in India, especially in Hindus, uh, those festivals, every day is a festival, and every festival is singing and dancing and music. Awesome. Singing is a major part in hymns. So if you look at uh, our holy scriptures, the Guru Granth Sahib, um, in your write-up it says it's 1,430 pages. Uh, what isn't mentioned in there is that it's all poetry. 100%. It is all in poetry form. And uh, when the first Europeans arrived in India, uh, they got frustrated with the Sikh faith. And one of the German missionaries said he didn't see any redeeming quality in terms of our scriptures because it did not have chapters. <laughs> there were no chapters, and he couldn't figure it out. In reality, our scriptures are written uh, in musical measures. So... They are in rags, what we call rags, and there's 31 musical measures, and every, uh, every hymn or every part of our scripture is meant to be read, it is meant to be meditated upon, and it's also meant to be sung, so that you can use all three of those tools to experience the divine. And so music is a very important part of our faith tradition. Yeah, I would say the same for ours, because many of our texts are also written, well, because it was initially an oral tradition, so when things got written down, it was from the chanting that was done. So, um, yeah, so music's a big one for us, too, in terms of singing and using our voices. So, All right. Um, it was mentioned in the earlier panel, uh, I think it was uh, Brian that brought up climate change, and the importance of addressing that issue. Do your traditions um, have something to say about the climate crisis that we're facing? For us, it would go back to the interdependence thing, just okay. that it didn't just occur out of nowhere. So there were thousands upon thousands of causes and conditions that lead up to whatever is happening at this moment. So, yeah, so it would be another just... Be, be aware of what you are doing because it has an effect somewhere. Mm -hmm. Similar. Yeah, okay. yeah our, our faith tradition doesn't have anything specific, but what it does say is to, to be in harmony with the source, with the creator, with nature. And our founders were very explicit about being respectful. Uh, and in that closing prayer, I mentioned water, yep. earth, and so on. So uh, I would say that uh, we don't have a formal position on it because we don't have a bunch of priests or ministers, yeah. but <laughs> the fact is that uh, climate change is not in keeping with uh, stewardship okay. and doing the right thing. So actually one of my questions uh, is about that. They wondered how do six organize since you don't have pastors? Say that again real quick. How, how, how do, do we you organize, organize your... Uh, oh, that's a great question. So here, here's how I'm going to put it. Human beings have a great tenacity to be able to organize. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Uh, even if there's no leadership, if for those of you who've seen kids play, there will always be something that comes about out of what looks like chaos. Uh, within the Sikh tradition, our services, they are passed down through tradition. So I mentioned earlier that uh, uh, you know women can take part in any service. Well, what I didn't mention is that our kids are the same. So we will have our kids conduct with the blessings of the congregation and making sure they understand how to do it, right? All of those conditions, uh, we will have them conduct parts of the services. So they are involved in the service itself. And so that tradition is passed down. Uh, when you look at things like the Lunger, where, where it's the, the organization, there, uh, there is just a tradition donating food. And in, in the major Gurdwaras, there's actually a list in the sense of a very long list of giving, and there's a timing for who gives when. So what happens is that human beings organize themselves very nicely. Uh, it doesn't mean you always have to have one leader. It's shared responsibility. It's the okay. best way to describe it. You, you share responsibility to lead. Um, Ved, the question was asked, do you view the caste system as something that's created outside of Hinduism? I'm sorry. Is the caste system something that's created outside of Hinduism? No, actually the caste system was not called a caste system. As it grew up, it was simply that uh, all societies, that they have got different kind of way of organizing themselves. And in Hinduism, at the very beginning, it was simply that Brahman, Kshatriya, Vaishya, Shudar, these are the four different, they were not castes. They were simply depending upon your own attitude, aptitude, your own nature, that you become a teacher. You become an administrator or warrior. You become, because you have the aptitude to be a good businessman, a farmer, and you don't have any skills, and therefore you might do work that is unskilled. So it was a division of labor, and division of labor is the one that began with all that. But then over a period of time, it got kind of ossified. Because in the beginning in that caste system, you were born a person in a family without any skills. You could become a Brahmin simply by studying. And there are countless examples of people who came from a Brahmin family and became totally unskilled and so they were the ones who were the ones unskilled. But over a period of time, as I said, 10,000 years is a long period. And in that one, there have been ups and downs. And over a period of time, it got ossified. And especially these 10,000 years of foreign, um, domination, foreign domination, it became kind of totally, totally rigid structure and that is where we see today remnants of that. Okay. So it was division of labor. It did not come from outside. It was not a caste. It was simply the four different aspects of life that you lead. Yeah. See if we can put these two together here. Someone asked the favorite ways that your children learn your traditions. 
And maybe along with that, what are you excited about for your religion in the future? Second one was... What are you excited about for your religion in the future? I think um, I'll I'll start with that. My daughter um, did her MBA law together, uh, started with the corporate council in a big corporation. And finally, one day she called and she said, you know, you kept talking about Hindu tradition and you talk, kept talking about working uh, for the poor and human rights. And she said, I'm going to leave all that and I'm going to work for human rights and I'm going to take probably one third of what I'm making right now, but I'm going to take a vow of poverty. And so, so she um, is working on human rights. She is presently refugee officer with the Homeland Security. And... Um, I'm very pleased and blessed her. And second, what I'm um, thinking about human, uh, Hinduism is that after that 10,000 years of foreign domination, finally it's blossoming. Finally, there is resurrection. Finally, you find that in India, there are people who are working, and I'm very, very pleased to see innovative way of looking at it reforms that were needed happening. And uh, despite some setbacks, because there are extremist elements as in every religion, and these are the people who are still living in the 18th, 17th, 19th century. But uh, Hinduism has got a wonderful future as I see it. Thank you. Our tradition specifically, we have a Dharma school, which is like a Sunday school program. So that's mostly what we use to pass on the teachings, but we also have service that's specifically geared towards them. Um, With the services, there's no set bit of curriculum. Uh, I read Dr. Seuss books a lot to the kids (laughs) because I could find a Dharma lesson in just about any kid's book ever. So... (laughs) I guess I am uh, generally excited. So like next month, for instance, we have a uh, banquet where we honor the high school graduates and they receive scholarships from the temple and some of the other organizations. It astonishes me every year just what these kids are going out to do. So even though they're just going off to college, they have all these wonderful plans of doing things like human rights work and all of that. So obviously being the minister, I'd like to say that that was totally my influence and we're teaching them (laughs) Buddhism. So I'm just going to go with that. I hope that that's what it was. But yeah, it's nice to when I'm able to see the kids that grew up in our temples going on to do these wonderful things that yeah. Always gives me a lot of hope. So, so um, very similar to what you're saying. We we have a, a couple of things. We do have camps for our kids. We engage them with services. We engage them in activities uh, within community as well, uh, including going out and doing seva or service for longer and and some of the other items I described. I, I think what's I'm very hopeful for within Sikhism, and I, and I see it as, we, we are truly fortunate in that our scriptures were codified at the time of the founders. Many other traditions go back 10,000 years. Since we only go back 500, we're babies compared to even a 3,000-year-old plus tradition. Our scriptures were codified from the very beginning. So as our founders were 
putting the tenets of the faith and the prayers and all of that, it came and was codified right away. So for me, what's very hopeful is that the Guru, the Guru Granth Sahib, as it has gone through multiple countries and it is now Sikhism has expanded uh, into multiple countries and we're in pretty much every probably every major country there is maybe even North Korea for all I know um, the fact is that there is a consistency and a continuation of the messages and that is very very uh, inspiring for me because it ensures that the next generation and, and the generations that come after like the ones who have come, like my own generation, will have something to guide them. And the part that I really am hopeful about is just having conversations with my daughters around the kitchen table. And there, it's talking about LGBTQ rights. It's talking about human rights. It's talking about all the things that we neglect to do. So I get challenged on those. And I'm able to go towards the written scriptures and be able to uh, explain what the tradition is about. And I think that's what probably makes me the most hopeful for us going forward. Awesome. I didn't say that, but uh, um, there is a Hindu temple here. And I uh, am the chair of the board of trustees. And in that temple, we have a, uh, several groups that young people have their own groups, they do seva. Uh, they also are the ones who read scriptures, but they work on human rights issues. And so there is, uh, through that osmosis and working together in the temple, that they learn all those traditions. All right, well, let's say thank you to our panelists for coming today. Thanks so much for listening to this replay of episode 135 as part of our memorial to Dr. Vednanda. We hope you enjoyed it, and if you have any questions, you can find us at brewtheology.org, at brewtheology on Facebook and Instagram, and at brew underscore theology on X. Thanks so much for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you next week.